there that's absolutely true is that the Psalms are primarily poetry. Now, I, I use that word, your eyes roll back in your head, you have flashbacks to your 11th grade English class, some uh, ancient uh, uh, teacher uh, droning on about their favorite poetry or whatever, and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, who, who cares about that? Um, but the fact is, uh, poetic language, uh, psalms, uh, songs, uh, poems put to music, give us a way to kind of think about and express uh, what uh, the, our hearts, our struggles, our, our, uh, the, the difficulties, our questions, our anxieties, all of those sorts of things. And so one of the things that we're going to do over the uh, uh, next several weeks as we look at the Psalms is try to unpack them a little bit more because I think the way most of us use the Psalms is uh, if you're having a bad day, you go home, you pick out a psalm that says God's good, and you're like, okay, I got my religious shot for the day, and you go on about your business. Or, or you uh, are really angry at somebody, and you pick out the psalms about God breaking people's teeth, right? And you read those, and you're like, yeah, I'm feeling much better now than I did before, right? Or, or you, you, and so you just, you, you, you use them that way. But the psalms are actually highly structured. Uh, uh, very pointed uh, and, and, and directed at a, 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 the use of language and words to capture and images to capture for us what God's doing with his people. And so one of the things I wanted to do is just look at a poem real quickly to kind of help us get into this before we look at, at Psalm 1. This is a poem called God's Grandeur by a guy named Gerard Manley Hopkins. Probably never heard of him. Some of you probably have. Gerard Manley Hopkins was a, an Anglican uh, about 150 or so years ago. Wrote a lot of poetry and he wrote this poem called uh, God's Grandeur. He says, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Very straightforward sentence. Doesn't sound poetic. You knew that. But then he says this next line. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. He could have just said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God and sometimes you see it. But what does he say? He says it flames out like shining from shook foil. Right? So all of a sudden you begin to get these images in your head about what it is that he's talking about. Right? It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? In other words, why don't, why don't we look at this? Why don't we think about this? Generations have tried, have tried, have tried. And all is seared with trade. Bleared and smeared with toil. Right. In other words, God's created this wonderful place for us to live where we can see his glory. And what do we do? We tread, we tread, we tread. We work, we work, we work. Boring, drudgery, work. Boring, drudgery, work. Where's God? Did you wake up this morning and see the sunrise at 5 o'clock, 5.45 or whenever it was? And hear the birds singing and say, God's grandeur? Okay, and uh, he goes on to say, and, is, and where's man's smudge and shares man's smell? The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shot. And for all this, nature's never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost. Over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings, right? 
So in other words, what we, what we have here is a, is a description for us of the beauty and the wonder of the created world and the fact that for most of us, most of the time, we look at the world as an economic thing and that we're here to make money and we're here to consume and we're here to work and that there's any sense of beauty, any sense of joy, any sense of the glory of God evident in, in the world around us, we just... We just seem to miss it. So as we come today, as we as we look at the Psalms, as I as I read um, I read the uh, the, the first uh, Psalm to you. I, there's well, you know what? We're going to talk a little bit. I'm I'm mixed up here. We're going to talk a little bit more about um, about the nature of the Psalms first to, to help you get a get a handle on it. Next slide. So um, first of all, they're poems and songs. When Jesus and his disciples sang together. Likely, this is what they sang. It was the hymn book of, of Israel, right? And so, so this 150 uh, psalms were uh, 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 put together uh, and inspired by God. And when God's people gathered together, they sang these. Now, we don't have much of the music left from these, but there are. Uh, that's exactly what we know. When Jesus was uh, finishing up the, the uh, first uh, uh, Lord's Supper as they were leaving, they sang a hymn, likely a psalm. So they express the full realm of emotion, but also are intended to make us not just feel, but think as well. And their imagery is powerful. Now, one of the things that happens to me a lot is people, I will say, you know, let's, let's develop the habit of reading the scriptures. And people will say, it is hard for me to understand the Bible. Well, the Psalms are not hard to understand. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, he could have said, the Lord takes care of me, <laughs> right? But he says, the Lord is my shepherd, and that creates an image for you, right? That's not complicated. God is my rock. God is my fortress. You, you know what that means when you, when, when you hear that and when you, when you, when you see those words. Uh, years ago, when, when Marty and I were putting on a vacation Bible school at another church, we, um, uh, we had a, 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 an art teacher do our arts and crafts. And uh, she had uh, never been to Vacation Bible School before. In fact, she was a brand new believer in Jesus. And so she would get the kids in the room and say, today we learned that, that God is our fortress and let's build a fort. And so the kids would do that. It was awesome. Now, the moms, on the other hand, were like, this is not what you do with Vacation Bible School crafts. We want something cute to bring home. It's very controversial, you know, as only VBS crafts can be, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and then the next day she's like, God's a rock. And so they made rock, rocks, giant rocks. And again, unacceptable because you couldn't bring them home. They were big. And so um, I think she was closer to it than some of the moms. So uh, anyway, um, so, so the fact is this, this, these images are powerful and they're simple and yet they convey so much, right? Uh, and sometimes words are chosen in Hebrew and the Psalms simply because of the way they sound. Not, not so much for the, the, the meaning of the words sometimes, although that's true, but a lot of times they're, they're chosen, uh, uh, they, the, the Hebrew language in poetry wants to sound a certain way, the same way it is uh, with English. And now one of the things that people may think is, well, these are just, you know, hymns and psalms and poems that people wrote back to God. But we know that God inspired the psalms because Jesus tells us so in, uh, uh, in Luke uh, or Mark chapter 12, verse 36. 
Jesus says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, quoting the psalm, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, right? So, so Jesus even says that, P, that David was moved by the Holy Spirit to write that. Next slide, please. And so that one of the things that you have to see about him is, unlike the way we tend to think about poetry, that, you know, you just write things down and they rhyme or whatever, these things are beautifully structured and it's put together. And in fact, the whole book of Psalms, you may think it's just 150 Psalms. It's actually not. It's, it's five books. It's five books. Uh, one uh, beginning at, at Psalm 1, 42, 73, 90, and 107. And each one of these books ends with a special doxology, right? And it's likely, probably likely, that these five books are meant to remind us of the first five books of the Bible, that there's a that there's a con- connection between uh, uh, the the first five books uh, of, of the Old Testament and uh, the the division that's there in um, uh, in the Psalms, and so it is. Uh, uh, I, I wish we had time to go through through all 150 of them, uh, but but we don't. Uh, so the fact is, we're going to hit uh, 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 psalms that are particularly relevant and particularly uh, helpful to us uh, over the next seven, eight, or nine weeks. And uh, uh, and I, my hope and my prayer is is that it'll encourage us a little bit more to think a little more uh, deeply about the images that God uses here in the Scripture. So what I'm going to do now is read to you Psalm one. That's the one we're going to do first. I'm going to read it to you in the King James, and the King. Why I'm going to read it to you in the King James is because um, it sounds a little more poetic to our ears, and uh, it's written in iambic pentameter, which is not unlike the way Shakespeare wrote. And so, uh, it's a so it's it's just a good way for us to hear it, hear it a little bit differently. Um, and this is the first passage of scripture I memorized as a kid, uh, and uh, I memorized it in the King James. So, which was the only Bible, because it was the one, after all, that John and Paul and Peter wrote. And so, uh, I was told that as a kid, and so uh, it was completely authoritative, and uh, that's that. So, uh, let me read to you uh, Psalm 1 from the King James. It's text is printed uh, in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly uh, shall perish. And so, um, so let's look, uh, let's look at at Psalm 1. Now first of all, uh, look at, look at how the psalmist begins. He says, blessed. Now one of the things that you should uh, think about, and one of the things that, that should resonate in your mind is, what is the first word of the first sermon that Jesus preaches? The Sermon on the Mount. And what does he say? Blessed. Right? Right? 
There's a resonance there. There's a, there's, there's, there's a reason for that, right? There's a, there's a, a particular thing that's going on here. So you should, so you, when you see this word, blessed is the man, then you should immediately begin to think, oh, this connects directly to the Sermon on the Mount. This is exactly what Jesus was getting at. So there's a, an immediate resonance with that. Now, we hear that word blessed, and we don't, what is, what does it really mean? Well, it means to be complete or content or even happy, really, in the fullest sense of the word. Now, happy is such a smarmy word for us. You know, it doesn't, you know, happy just is, you know, it's just a dumb word, really, that we use a lot. And, and, but this is in the, the complete and the fullest sense of that, right? And so what, what the, the psalm writer here wants us to see and understand right off the bat is that completion, joy, satisfaction, contentment in life is centered in a particular place. And what he says there is, he says, Blessed, happy is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, now my dad had me memorize this when I was six years old, and which is a great gift to me. Um, but I think the reason why he wanted me to memorize it was bad. Because the reason why he wanted me to memorize it was the way to grow up and the straight and narrow is to memorize your stinking Bible. So you meditate on the Bible, and you're not going to be like these people. And, and so, you know, which is, for a six-year-old, that's probably not all bad. You know, there's, there's all kinds of terrible influences on the playground. And, uh, I mean, you saw them right here. You know, so, uh, you know, there's some scoffers right up here in the midst of this. No, they're not. But... Uh, so, but the thing about it is, why does he begin this way? Why doesn't he just say, especially speaking, you know, to, to, this is a very simple sum, why doesn't he begin by saying the words, don't be wicked, don't sin, and don't scoff? Why doesn't he just say that? That's direct, straightforward, I get that. Stop it! I've heard that all my life. <laughs> Stop it! Right? So, why doesn't he, why doesn't he just do it that way? Well, because what he's doing here is something uh, that we, the, we probably miss. Because what, what we think he's saying here is, here's a good way and here's a bad way. This is the way you're a good boy and this is what you do to be a bad boy. And though there's some truth to that, there's, there's more going on here than that. Because the contrast here is not necessarily between wickedness and righteousness, but on the places where we are influenced. What shapes your thoughts and where do you go where do you go to get your thoughts shaped right so so the so the fact is you know where do we go to find the things that influence us right so where do i look for value what 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 tells me what's valuable in the world or or who tells me what is important and and where do i get my sense of myself in the world, well, well, you can you can get it. You can get it from God. You can get it from the truth that He has revealed to us, or you can go get it somewhere else. Now, the fact is, we're a mixed bag on this, right? We're 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 influenced, and we get uh, our thoughts and all this kind of stuff from from uh, you know a lot of a lot of other places and a lot of other things. But but the the fact is, the truth is that's the question, because. The, the issue for us is, what are we drawn to? And, what, and when, when we are drawn to those things, how do they shape 
the way we think. Next, next slide, please, Sarah. So, so the, the tenses here indicate kind of a decisive turn. That's the, the uh, standing and, and walk, walking and sitting and all of that. These tenses indicate kind of a decisive turn toward things other than God's revelation for where we get what we think and feel about the world. So what he's doing here is setting up a contrast in verse 1 and verse 2, not with duty, your duty is to meditate on the word of God, but because who's dutifully wicked? Only only 13-year-olds, right, are dutifully wicked because they suddenly find themselves trying to get, work their way into the in crowd, and so so it's my duty to be a jerk along with everybody else so I'll be accepted, right? But that's 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 generally not the way it works. But what, what he's setting up a contrast to here is with competing desires. Now, where do you get your information about how to think about yourself? Where do you get your information for how to think about the world? Now, I've said this before, and I will say it again. I think all of us have in our minds and our hearts, these things that are, in our way of thinking, infallible and authoritative sources of information. Now, I went to bed on Thursday night, absolutely certain, because the London bookies said that England would never leave the European Union. It's infallible, straightforward, and all the pundits the talking heads, the guys who have all the things after their name said, it's absolutely certain it's going to be this way. And lo and behold, I got up Friday morning, and they were wrong. They were wrong. And people were wringing their hands because they were wrong. Now, I'm not making a political statement here because... You know, it was a. I know a lot of wealth was created and a lot of wealth was destroyed on Friday, and who knows what's going to happen next. But I must confess that I was secretly happy that they were wrong, just because I don't like that they think they're never wrong. It did make some good. I'm like, well, we won't trust these guys anymore because they blew this one, right? And so, so the fact is, that happens to us all the time. We, we look around us in the world and we think, ah, that's the way things are. Or, oh, no, that's the way I am. Or, oh, yes, you know, or I, 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 if I could just earn my way and, and, and do better, this would, this would happen. When the fact is, what we get here is, is that what God says to us, that we are broken, needy people, and that he has supplied what we need in Jesus Christ. And he has revealed to us over and over and over again the nature of his, of his supply to us and the nature of his provision for us. That Jesus Christ stepped into this world because we needed him to, and he lived our life, and he died our death, and he rose again. And that is the source... That is the center of how I think about myself and, and where I get my worth and value and what where worth and value is in this world, right? So what, what he's getting at here is, is that if we look at something long enough, we want it. We want it. I am always stunned when I buy something on Amazon, or I don't even buy something on Amazon. I just look at it. Like, I was trying to get some books to read on vacation. 
And everywhere else I go on the Internet, there are these little windows with those books on them, trying to get me to look at it. And, and, and the more you look at it, you're more, the more you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get that. Well, that's exactly what the psalmist is getting at here, right? So, so the, the contrast is not so much between duty and obedience, but to delight and meditation, right? And so what is intended here is, is that the gospel is to replace the, these things that the world, the scoffer, the sinner, and the, uh, uh, and the wicked press upon us. Now, these, these things don't appear to us. One of the reasons why this psalm lacks power for us is because most of us think, I would never be attracted to wickedness. I would never be attracted to scoffing. I would never be attracted to, that, to, to something that's sinful because it's bad. And I don't like bad. I prefer good. So that's for those other people out there. Or those other people's kids. They're like that. But I'm not like that. Psalm 1, huh, I am the righteous man. See these roots sinking down into the water? Look at that. But I will tell you how it works. I had the honor yesterday of doing uh, a great graveside service for a faithful saint. Uh, who left a, a, a tremendous testimony with his family and his friends of the work of God. Very simple, but powerful and humble man. And we, we hoped in the resurrection there in that cemetery, and then we went back to their house, and we ate some food, and we fellowshiped with one another, and we cried, and we laughed, and we hoped in Jesus. And I walked away from that saying, that... That's what matters. That's what matters. And I was running errands. And I was in a parking lot. And I saw this car. I'd never seen a car like it before. It was silver. It had German writing on it. It was sleek. And I saw it. And I saw it. And I walked around it. And I looked at it. And I looked at it again. And I envisioned myself riding down the road with the wind blowing in my hair. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know what? That car right there, that might make life worth living. If I had that car. And then it's just this quick jump from that to, Lord, why don't I have that car? Really? Why don't I have it? Now, I just come from the burying a saint. When, which is the most clarifying thing we ever do in the church. Is when we hope in the resurrection with a dead man in front of us. And we think about what really matters in life is the testimony of Jesus. And you can go from that to looking at a car and thinking, I, that testimony? How nice. That right there is what's going to give me some life. We do it all the time with all sorts of things. Not just cars, but reputations. And, and, and with, with, well, you think about it. You, whatever it is that you do, 
we know that we do that, right? And so what we see here is, is that what God is communicating to us is, is that the gospel, the revelation of God to us in the scriptures is intended to delight us. It's not intended just simply to, to be there to instruct us, but it is to delight us and give us a sense of the joy that we have in being known by our Father, of being loved by our Father, of, of having and experiencing the rich and full grace of God to me, and that, that that can never, ever, ever change. And so that when I see myself being, being drawn to the scoffer and to the wicked and, and, and to the ways the world lies to me, what happens to me is what God is warring against in that with me is my desires to latch on to those things. And what he says is, I delight in you because I delight in you because Jesus has died for you and because I delight in you, delight in what I have for you because what I have for you is rich and full and free. So the gospel is intended to delight us. That's why he wants us to see it and to hear it and to know it. So, so then look, then he goes on there to verse 3 to say, to use this image of the tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season, his leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Now, now why doesn't he say, you know, instead of using this image of a tree, why doesn't he say, when you meditate on God's word, you'll not act with, wickedly, you won't sin, and you won't scoff? Well, the reason for that is, that, that, that this is what he's getting at here is he's describing to us what the life of a follower of Christ is like. The life of a follower of Christ is about fruit bearing. It's about fruit bearing. It's about being and experiencing that fruit bearing planted where God has planted us. Next to the gospel is the water of life. Now, um, this, this uh, description of this, I think, is, is, really, is really powerful. It says, The phrase, bringeth forth fruit in this season, emphasizes both the distinctiveness and the quiet growth of the product. Now, now the fruit that we're talking about here is not celebrity fruit. And, and it's not even fruit that comes out all the time. It is fruit that is appropriate to the season when the fruit is supposed to be born. Right? And it's the tree acting in the way that it is supposed to act, right? And so it emphasizes the, the distinctiveness and the quiet growth of the product. For the tree is no mere channel piping the water unchanged from one place to another, but a living organism which absorbs it. So the gospel, the, the spirit of God, the work of God in us flows into the tree and it bears fruit, right? And, and each one of us is a different kind of tree and we're going to bear a unique and different kind of fruit that, that God's, the way he's working in me and the experience that I have with him is going to look differently from the way it looks for you. But that's what he's doing. He is bearing fruit through us, right? So it's a living organism which absorbs it to produce in due course something new and delightful proper to its kind and time. Now, when I was a kid and I memorized this, and this image was very powerful to me because uh, on the farm where I grew up, we had, a, we had a little stream, a little creek that we called it, that ran right through the middle of the, of the farm. And there was this giant tree about this big around that had grown up on the bank of the creek. And over time, even by the time we got the farm, like in the mid-60s, it had fallen over. And it was fallen over like this big tree like that, still alive. 
still alive. It was a great tree because you could walk across the creek on the tree. It was still alive. And I was amazed by that. Because it was right there by the, by the stream, it continued to live and it continued to grow. And it, 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 was, it was almost, it was, it, was, it was the most powerful image. And every time I read this psalm as a kid, I thought about that tree. I drove by that tree a couple of years ago because you drive by it now because it's in the middle of a subdivision. And you know what? It's still growing. It's still there. It's, it was old then. That was 50 years ago. You know, 50's not old, you know, if you're a tree. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was there. I saw it. And it's still there. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, so what we see here is, is that, that what, 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 is, what is happening is that the, as we absorb the gospel, uh, we, we, we repent. We, we, we are challenged by the goodness and the grace of God. And as we repent and as we trust Him and as we delight in Him and we, we see and we hear from Him about who we are and, and who He is and what He has for us, we, this delight and this fruit takes place and is born in our lives. And he says to us that our leaf won't wither. So, so even though we may be in a drought and even though we may be in a difficult situation, we, we can trust and we can know that he is for us and he is with us. Because one of the things that you have to see about that tree is you don't plant yourself. Jesus plants you and he plants you by the gospel. He plants you by him and he is the one that is giving you by his spirit this truth that causes you then to bear fruit. And then lastly, the one thing in this psalm that you probably read and you think that's just not the case because it says, and whatever he does shall prosper. Now in America... You can make a lot of money telling people if they just do the right thing, they'll get rich and prosper. You can tell people that. And that that's what really God's design for you is, for you to be rich and prosperous right here and now. And that's attractive, isn't it? Well, maybe. I, I, it's not attractive because it's a lie, but, <laughs> but it. It, it, it seems to, to attract a lot of people. Well, what does he mean when he says that whatever this person does, he'll prosper? Well, this is what he means. The context of this is in the context of judgment. And what he's saying there is that ultimate prosperity is not dying with a lot of toys or a big bank account. Ultimate prosperity is not having your friends think you're something special that, that you really aren't. Ultimate prosperity is found in the judgment. The ultimate way to prosper is to know that when you open your eyes after you've breathed your last, that you will look into the eyes of your judge and the eyes of your judge is going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, welcome, because I lived for you, I died for you, I rose again for you, and, and I, have, I have borne fruit through you while, while you were here on this planet, and now you are welcome, because the ultimate prosperity is found in the righteousness that we get from Jesus Christ, and that it bears fruit in our lives. 
Now, the thing that's profound about this is, is that we can trust that wherever God has planted us, wherever he has put us, the gospel is there. The, the stream of living water is there, and it will nourish us, and it will cause us to bear fruit. The issue for us, the, the thing that's most challenging probably for us is, is that we would rather, we would prefer our desire is on these things that we look at, that we keep looking at. And we think, ah, that's going to make me feel better. That's going to help me. That, that, if I have that, people will think more of me. If I, if I have that, my wife will respect me. If I, if I have that, my children will think I'm cool. You see, the war that's going on in this text and the war that he's describing there is the war for your desire and the war for your delight. Um, we need to stop what we're doing right now and ask God to help us not just meditate day and night on the scriptures, that's certainly, but what we need to have him do is to see delight in the things that the gospel supplies to us. So let me pray. Lord, we, uh, we come to you now asking you to help us because our our tendency is to be influenced by, by things other than you and to find our prosperity in things other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And our tendency is to find um, delight in temporary, failing, fading things that are around us. And so I pray that you would forgive us. But I also pray, Lord, that you would... Uh, make captivating to us and captivate our hearts uh, this picture of, uh, well, the life that Jesus enables us to live, repenting, trusting, bearing fruit in season, and uh, standing through the difficulties and the changes that often occur in our circumstances. And so I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would challenge us by that. And Lord, I, I pray too that we would be uh, captivated by your delight uh, and that uh, your delight would cause us to delight in who you say we are and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And so bless us with that, I pray today, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.